0: Okay, I'm Rudy Rucker. Now I want to talk about some sort of further-out ideas. Now these have to do with something that I call a life box. I've been talking about it for quite a long time. I think I first started writing about it even in 1975. It's this idea of getting a, a model of a, of your mind that could be accessed, you know, by a computer or in the cloud. In my novel Software, I had them do that, but that was a very complicated procedure. They took out a guy's brain and then got all the the chemicals out of it and microtomed the neurons and the architecture and a method that's sort of a lot simpler that we could do nowadays is basically build it out of a database. So, depending on the person you can get a big database that has uh, a lot of things that they've said or uh, written so typically, if you could get all of your email into it and uh, any video or audio of you, and if you're fortunate enough to be a writer, then you've got all your, your collected works in there. And uh, the least, maybe less interesting option is for you to answer really extensive interviewing. So the Lifebox, you've going to have this huge block of data. And then interactive search which we've pretty much, I mean, we've got that. I actually have a primitive version of a Lifebox for myself. Well, if you search for Rudy's Lifebox, you can find it. And what that is, you can install a, you can install a Google search box on any web page, and you can limit the search to a certain domain. And I limit it to the domain rudyrucker.com. And I've sort of made a practice of putting up huge amounts of data about myself there. Now, I'm not talking about private data. Whenever I write a novel, I put up, uh, I post uh, the notes, all my writing notes for, d- that I did during the novel. And I've been blogging for, I don't know, quite a few years now, maybe 15, 10, 15 years. So there's a load of stuff up there. And uh, I try to, a lot of my books I have online in HTML format. So. And the the whole reason I did that was to make them easily searchable so people could find things in them. Google does put books online, but I'd sort of like to have control of the Lifebox and have it not be pages that Google owns. Anyway, so you get this big mass of data about yourself. Then somebody searches it. Now, the thing is, the way human conversation works, people don't generally actually answer the questions that you ask them. They use the words that are in your question as triggers, and then they do a search on their mind, and they just dredge up whatever hits they find that contain at least two words that were in your question. <laughs> and if you think of it, you'll notice you do that yourself, too. And I sometimes get interviewed because I'm a writer, and I, I will even do it deliberately. I mean, if the question isn't something that it provokes an interesting line of thought. I'll just take two words from it. And so, that's, so you can do Google search. You put a question in there and then search on the data, and it'll spew out uh, some links. Now, the part that I haven't written is the front end or the interface. It'd be nice to have some, would be a fairly low-level AI that would simply take those two or three hits that come up then go to those places in the data, like in my emails or in my novels, in my journals, and then craft together a nice little paragraph from those. And that's not even at all a hard problem these days. It's pretty easily done. Uh, I was talking to Stephen Wolfram about this last night, and he and I have a way of first pretending to have friendly conversations and then stealing each other's ideas. <laughs> Which, uh, So he says, well, yeah, I've been working on this thing. I've got all my emails and uh, I'm having a search engine go through them and we've developed this really nice uh, deep learning algorithm neural network to make it so it answers just like me. I said, that's what I call a life box, Stephen. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. (laughs) Then, I mean, I'll mention later something... That I'm talking about today, that I got from a remark of his. So, um, but n- Stephen has this huge staff, and they, you know, they're going to have this great AI interface. So hopefully, I can get that off him to have a nice interface for my lifebox. At present, it's pretty crude. Uh, now, that's just a, a sort of imp- impressionistic picture of the database of things that I write. I actually made this when I was doing a a Kickstarter for my novel, Return to the Hollow Earth, and trying to get people to cough up some money to help me publish that book. And uh, it's a bunch of journal notes with drawings. And that, that little crystal ball, I like that thing. My wife gave it to me for my birthday, I think, last year. It was in one of the photos in the other talk. That thing on the upper left, that's a plasmasphere. That's one of the greatest toys. They're they're making a comeback. You couldn't get them for many years, but now they're back. Uh, Anyway, uh, now, another way of thinking about the lifebox, you wouldn't want it to just have a, to to improve it. You'd like it to have more than just, you know, the brute raw data. It'd be nice if you could program uh, hyperlinks into it because there are, things that, sentences that I've written or that I've thought that immediately link to other sentences that I think about. But if you just did a raw search on the words, the the raw search wouldn't turn that up. So it'd be nice to have a dense hyperlink. Uh, I don't know, it's a little hard to see this. Uh, I don't know if we can make it bigger. Can you see it? Okay, I I won't take a chance and try to adjust my computer. I I don't want to get into that. (laughs) Why isn't it working? So, uh, that's, uh, the users, as people actually use your Lifebox, they'll be leaving traces of where they've been, so they'll be enriching it, they'll be adding hyperlinks. And, again, this is one of these AI things where you could possibly have, uh, have it, the, the Lifebox itself be producing hyperlinks. So that's a little bit tricky. Th- that gets into understanding natural language, which is, notoriously different, difficult problem. Now, uh, but going a little further, training your life box, well, you want to feed it data, and uh, one thing you can do is talk with it, and in your natural flow of conversation you have things that, uh, what do you talk about? If you mention A, what do you then typically talk about after that? So those would be, you'd be teaching at hyperlinks that, about the things how to imitate somebody. So, again, imitating what somebody says, that's pretty low-level AI. You can just sort of kind of mindlessly notice that whenever they mention this topic, then whenever they talk about a pumpkin, then they talk about this one Halloween party where they got arrested, you know, and then you'd, you'd know to always mention those two together. So, uh, so let it deduce things. And again, neural net AI, for a long time um, there's this dream among ai workers that they're going to discover some sort of magic <coughs> magic concept that would kind of crack the ai problem and it's starting to look like there isn't going to be anything exactly like that it's going to be a matter of just really deep learning with neural nets which is just giving a lot of data to a neural network and then testing it and saying, can you understand this, can you identify this and then if it can, then you enhance the strength of the links that it has and if it doesn't, you weaken them. And when you're left, you have this pile of uh, oh, I don't know, maybe a thousand so-called neurons with little lines running between them with weights connecting them all and then that's a model of you and you say, but wait, where's my soul? It's just this pile of numbers you know. and that's the that's what's in your brain in some sense, it's just this pile of links and it's not that there's some magic understanding we're going to get. Anyway, I've had a little, I have this novel I wrote called uh, Saucer Wisdom I happen to have a copy or two with me today and I'll just hold it up Uh, this um, there's a story in there that's sort of funny. The way this book is written, it's about... Uh, supposedly there's a friend of mine who's been abducted repeatedly by UFOs and he's uh, he's gotten these glimpses into the future. They've showed him what's going to happen in the future. And then there's this, uh, if I can find it, there's this uh, thing about the life box which uh, geez, that's the thing you can't you can't search paper. It's hard. If I, in other ways, uh, paper's is a lot better because oh here it is. So um, so I have this image of a, an old man, you know, some old doddering geezer. And one of the big markets. Uh, I thought I'd mention this at this conference because I'm sure some of you are interested in having businesses and making money, so I wanted to give you some lucrative tips on what to do. And uh, I think the Lifebox would be a very popular product because it's a very common, you've probably had relatives that do this. When they get old, they want to write their life story, they want to write their memoir, they want to make a web page with all the pictures of their life, they want to leave something behind that's a memento of them. And what we want to do, the next step, is to kick it up a little bit so you can have this web page that emulates them and you can talk to them. And people have already, there's already been talk about introducing products like this. I've seen articles about people doing this. I never get jack shit credit for it, even though I've been talking about it for 30 years. But, uh, anyway, (laughs) I'm getting credit today. Uh, The, uh, but it's gonna be a commercial product. Actually, uh, I even went to a conference in San Francisco on digital immortality. And there was a guy from Hallmark Cards there. And he was saying, yeah, we're totally invested in this. We want to get this to work. Because we want to have some program where people can... Uh, if, you, if you search around, you'll find there are kind of weak products that do this now my life. So uh, I had this idea about an old man. An old man who's using a life box. His name is Ned. They watch Ned... Uh, white-haired Ned is pacing in his small backyard, a concrete slab with some beds of roses. He's talking and gesturing, wearing the headset and with the life box in his shirt pocket. You can hear the sound of the life box. It's a woman's pleasant voice. The marketing idea behind the life box is that old duffers always want to write down their life story. With the life box, they don't have to write. That's the big hang-up, Most people can't really write, you know, and your life story is very difficult because it's branching, it's a fractal, you know, everything leads to something else. So they can get by with just talking if they have the Lifebox. The Lifebox software is smart enough to organize the material into a shapely whole, like an automatic ghostwriter. The hard thing about creating your life story is that your recollections aren't linear, they're a tangled banyan tree of branches that split and merge the life box uses hypertext links to hook together everything you tell it. Then your eventual audience can interact with your stories, interrupting and asking questions. That's the key thing: that it has to be interactive, or you don't have the conversation. So, uh, my guy in the story, he he goes to he jumps through time when Frank Old Ned is dead, and uh, he sees two of Ned's grandchildren who are playing with one of the copies of Ned's Lifebox. Uh, Wait a minute. Let's see. Okay. They watch Ned's grandchildren, little Billy and big sis. The kids call the Lifebox Grandpa, but they're mocking it, too. They're not putting on the polite faces that kids usually show to grown-ups. Billy asks the Grandpa Lifebox about his first car, and the Lifebox starts talking about an electric-powered Honda, And then it mentions something about using the car for dates. Sis, little Billy, calls her Pig Sis instead of Big Sis. Sis asks the life box about the first girl that Grandpa dated, and Grandpa goes off on that for a while. And then Sis looks around to make sure Mom's not in earshot. The coast is clear, so she asks naughty questions. Did you and your dates do it in the car? Did you use a rubber? Shrieks of laughter. You're a little too young to hear about that, says the Grandpa Lifebox calmly. Let me tell you more about the car. <laughs> so, so, it's just use cases. It's, it's always fun to think about the way people are actually going to use things. Now, uh, one of the things that I think the Lifebox could help with is another thing, besides writing a memoir, see that's the wedge, that's why they start the product starts but then it's going to be good for a lot of other things. And one of the things is, I mentioned earlier, the sort of, oh, the holy grail of AI is natural language recognition. And, you know, they just beat and beat on that problem. And it's just very, very incremental, slow progress. When you want to communicate with somebody, you often send them a link to your webpage so they can get a context for who you are and what you're talking about. And it'd be even better if you could send them your, your, a link to your life box so they could discuss with you and grill you. And if you're a machine doing natural language recognition, if you have somebody's lifebox, then you can search for instances of a given word and you can see it in various contexts and you can do a little neural net analysis on that and figure out how that word is being used. So that's, that's going to be another use of the lifebox. Basically, we need, we need lots of data. That's actually one reason why Google's voice recognition to keyboard is, is so good because they have such an insanely large amount of data about users. But again, it would be nice to be able to do this on our own. Um, okay, now I want to switch over to, I mentioned I'm going to be talking about telepathy and digital immortality today using the Lifebox. Now this is a cool photo I took in San Francisco. We were in a cab. And uh, I love the shape of the window in that car and that, that cool uh, poster, whatever it is, and the sunset. It's just it's an awesome picture. And uh, now how do I share an image like that? Well, it's like, how do you share a thought? Now, with an image, usually there's, there's three, thing, three ways you can do it. One way, you can describe it in words. And that's, it only goes so far because I could talk a lot about this picture and you wouldn't really see what it looks like. The, the next way is to email you a JPEG okay, and then you've got, you've got the pixel by pixel representation of it and you can look at it. Now the third way, which is what we actually use more often these days, rather than me sending you a heavy, a heavyweight JPEG, I just send you a link to where this thing lives on the cloud. There's actually three different ways. The link is nice because it's very lightweight and it, it actually preserves my ownership of the image too if that matters to me. So as I say that uh, you describe the image, show you a photo, hyperlink. Now the thing, the way I'd like to see telepathy work would be to give you a link to something in my brain. I mean it's kind of an outrageous notion but it could be do- done, could be doable. So, uh, rather than sending you any of those things... Now, I can see something in my brain. There's a certain pattern there that's happening. Now, it would be cool if somebody could just sort of link into that and see it. So here's a nice picture of a brain. At one point, I was really into Mandelbrot set fractals, and then I got into cubic and fourth-degree Mandelbrot sets, which, for some reason, I don't understand... The things that people don't investigate that are so interesting, it's not that much being done with those. Anyway, that's cool. That's your brain on, uh, on computers. Now, uh, linking into each other's thoughts, I talked a little about this earlier today. I talked about this idea that we could have these little slugs that would glue to your neck and they would be sensitive to uh, the electrical fields around your brain and maybe be able to at the low end it would just be like these things that they give people who have prosthetics and making the, the engines of the prosthetics be controlled by activities in their brain that's you know that's totally doable though it's still pretty kludgy I was, there's an article about it in last month's Scientific American there's some guy they actually they put a chip into his head to make it work and it was so he could raise his hand, his actually raise his artificial arm, and drink a beer. I mean, that's a pretty stiff price to be able to drink a beer, to have a chip in your head, you know. So, basic rule of thumb, never let them implant things in your brain. You know, that's pretty obvious, but it's funny. how huh? Slowly, things shift, and suddenly these things start seem, seeming reasonable that really are not reasonable. But if you've been around computers at all, you know that They're going to want to upgrade it 18 months from now, you know, (laughs) or it's going to get some malware on it. That's going to be great. You're going to be listening to political speeches all night long. Uh, Anyway, so that's the thing. We don't want the ads. Now, but this opens up the whole issue. If we do get telepathy happening at all, that's totally going to be a channel that we want to control it. Now... We've got uh, filtering it somehow. Now, of course, there's obvious sorts of filters, like we use malware filters, spam filters, but you sort of would want something better for telepathy because it's such an intimate contact. You wouldn't want to be at all possible for bad actors to get at you. And uh, so what are you going to use? I mean, something like blockchain, is that relevant here? I'm not sure that's exactly it. Uh, but it's, it's interesting to think about. What I think about, really, is there's this thing called recognition, and when somebody talks to you, when you see them, you recognize them. I mean, you, you actually can tell that's the actual person. It's this sort of deep process we have for recognizing people, and it's something about facial recognition, the recognition of voice, and also more of a an AI thing about understanding the nature of the things they say. So... Uh, I don't know. Uh, does anybody have any ideas about relevance of blockchain to telepathy? You want to throw anything out there? Where are you going to keep the keys? Yeah. Where are you going to keep the key? Yeah, yeah, can't people just intercept the <laughs> information? Is there any software that always have possible? Well, I do give people my email address if I want them to email me. So you could have a really screwed up email address. Telepathy, but that's you know that's pretty weak. I think it, it needs a higher order kind of key. That's the thing. That's what I'm getting at with recognition. Well, let's let that fester for a little while and go on. Uh, digital immortality is another thing that i wanted to talk about. And uh, at what point can you say that you're able to make? This is an old dream in science fiction. A lot of people have written about it. I don't know if any of y'all read Cory Doctorow's novels. He had a novel called *Walkaway* that came out two years ago. That had a lot of digital immortality in it, really fascinating. Uh, now, for, if you want to get the digital immortality, there's, there's four things you need, and sometimes people don't realize there's all of those things. Uh, to have the speed and the memory space like a human brain that's, that's not necessarily out of reach. We could get there maybe in 20 or 30 years. Uh, the data, also, with the lifebox thing, if you're really thorough about it, and if this got to be something that you knew you wanted to do, you might be wearing sort of a, something like a camera for your whole life. People do these funny things, or you might be taping everything you do. You say, "I, I want to make sure I have it all." so I want to go into the terminal life box. So that's also doable. The thing actually that's hard is the sort of AI thing. In other words, to get software that is equivalent to humans. In other words, you can buy a, a computer, a laptop, you know, with you know it's got a terabyte memory, it's got this insanely large amount of RAM, really fast. And then you're like, wow. But if it doesn't have any software on it, it doesn't do anything. So See, getting a machine whose physical abilities are comparable to the brain, that's doable. But then getting the operating system on it, getting the the programs on it, that's the part that's hard, because that's the essence of us. Um, Now, then there's this fourth sort of elusive thing. We always feel like consciousness, that's something I have at my core. It's the sense of some pure sense of I am, I am me, this kind of white light, this luminous, numinous essence of yourself. Okay, and that's another issue. Now, uh, here's one of these graphs that people like to do. And we're assuming Moore's Law, so we have every, every 15 years uh, the computational ability gets a thousand times better. I've always liked these uh, official prefixes that people use. Kilo, Mega, giga, terra, you know all of those. Peta, you're starting to hear. Exa, you don't hear so much. That's kind of, you'll be hearing more about that. But then we get to the really good ones. Zeta, uh, most people don't know that one. That's a one with 21 zeros. Yada, that's a 10 or the 24. Yada, one interesting thing, I did a calculation when the sun comes up in the morning, it's really bright, okay? And I was like, well, how many watts is the sun? And I did a calculation. It's a yada watt, okay? So we're just really lucky we don't have to pay the power bill for the sun. Uh, <laughs> well, that's at the very top. See, yeah, uh, then watt, and they're not sure about those. See, they got zeta and yada, and then there's the International Bureau of Official Scientific Prefixes. I think they're called something like that. So then they say, well, let's go z, y, x, and w. So the Xanaflop. wada, you know, flop. <laughs> that's that's a really good computer, so uh, but it looks like to me like we'd be able to physically match the human brain around 2050, and when we're at the exaflop level or exabyte level, but we have to get all the way up to the Wado level to evolve human brain software, and if you did it just brute force, if you like set up a little virtual world with you know a billion little bots in there that were supposed to be like people and each of them had the power of a an exaflop you know and then let them interact do neural nets with them and you judge them and let them do auto training and you have to let it run for a long time sometimes when we do we get drunk with power with computers and we gotta remember that I mean we evolved over you know ten millions tens of millions of years Somebody could probably give me a better number than that. And it's not running on a cheesy little chip, you know. It's running on planet Earth, which is a fairly large computational system. But it's doable, it's doable. But maybe we can do that by 2100, if Moore's Law holds up. Uh, Now that fourth thing, the I am part, that's, there's I am, okay. That's me in the good old days when I was in grad school, back in the, the 70s. That was the true 60s, the 70s. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually on the cover of my autobiography. It's called, uh, it's called Nested Scrolls. So you might want to check that out sometime. Uh, now, another way, but given, what is the, qu- the question of what is consciousness like on a computer? There's this man called Damasio uh, who wrote a series of, he's a kind of a scientist, psychologist, and he has an interesting theory about what makes up consciousness. He thinks it's a four-step process. And uh, step one is you have models of the things in the world. I like you have metal models of, you know, the chairs, my car, my house, my children. You know, these are little models kicking around. And then I have a model of myself, okay? me, the proto-self. Then the next step is I have the what they call the movie in the brain. I have the image of myself interacting with the objects around me. So that's pretty clear. And then Damasio says the key step, that's when you get to a, and even, I mean, even lower animals have one, two, and maybe three. Certainly they have one and two, maybe three. The fourth level is when you have an image of yourself watching the movie in the brain, so that's uh, it's, so because that's if you think about it that's what you're imagining scenarios, but you're also aware of your own reactions to these scenarios that you're you're imagining so he, he claims that that's that's where we get to consciousness now once we know what we 're trying to do, all of this can be emulated in software there's no reason we couldn't emulate all of this, and so that's I'm saying it wouldn't be necessarily that difficult if we could get something of the power of the human brain and with the level of uh, computational software. Another way to look at the I am issue, that's the old uh, Buddhist thing. They'll say, uh, there's this question, this koan, somebody says to the, the monk, does a dog, let's see, can a dog have Buddha nature? And then the old monk says, the universal rain moistens all creatures. And and what he means by that is everything in the universe has soul. And Stephen was actually getting at that earlier today. He talked about the principle of computation equivalence. The idea is it's not necessarily something special about us. Anything in the world has this glow of white light coming through it, this sort of cosmic, cosmic uh aha. So, easy problem. Now, uh, one more thing I want to kick in here that I've been thinking about recently, uh, the idea of a juicy ghost. That's a phrase I just started thinking about. And uh, instead of modeling myself as a life box, you know, a box with a bunch of information in it and a bunch of software, what if I could just get juicy about it and copy myself into the the brain of a dog. And uh, why a dog? I don't know. This is a dog I used to have. His name was Arf. And this is one day Arf and I went rowing on the James River together. We had a little inflatable raft. And I took a picture of him. I don't think I've ever seen anyone look so noble, you know. (laughs) And Arf is in a lot of my novels. Uh, Anyway, the thing is, if you're gonna go ahead and make a, a replica of yourself in the world, it's better to use an animal because then you've got sense organs, you've got mobility. In other words, who wants to just be some, some program in the cloud? What good is that? So, uh, now if we spawn off either life boxes, copies of ourselves, or juicy ghosts, then we get into, here we get into, again, uh, possible blockchain situation suppose I've made three copies of myself and uh, I'm dead and I don't have any children or a wife, but I want one of my copies to get my stuff and then, but maybe somebody snuck and made an extra copy or two of me, and so which, which is the real me, you know, which is the real copy so there's, is there some sort of trademark I could put on it, is there some way I could register it and uh, possibly there would be a blockchain angle on registering the copies of yourself that you make. That's all the copies out there, I guess. This is a painting I did. Uh, this is actually a painting of my son's business. My son runs a business in San Francisco called, block, uh, not blockchain, it's called Monkey Brains, monkeybrains.net. And they're a, a WISP, a wireless internet service provider and that's the two monkeys there that's him and his partner Alex and those are the customers and then rather than having a a cable come into your house like with Comcast you get a a wireless antenna and that's that's Route 280 a lot of traffic (laughs) okay so those are most of the things I wanted to say today and uh, if you have any comments or if you can make any sense out of it uh, why don't you share it with us External civilization created this kind of life box already, and uh, put this life box in our bodies. Yeah. Oh, whether uh, well, I don't know if God would go to that much trouble <laughs> just to make me. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you if you have children or you have relatives with children. We were talking about this at lunch. It's such just so miraculous. I mean, we geeks are always dreaming about ways of creating living beings, but a woman <laughs> there it is <laughs> <You know? laughs> and she didn't do any programming, you know <laughs> and the thing is, people used to talk about nanotechnology a lot, and now they don't talk about it as much anymore. but I think biotechnology is kind of viewed as. I think that's what we meant to talk about all along. And nano was, they, <laughs> Drexler used to talk about making, you know, nanometer long gears, you know, on diamond spindles, which that's really not the right way to think about what's going on in your cells. So it's much gnarlier. So I think we, we you know we really hardly have started with biotech. What we're doing now is it's so crude. It's just very low level. But uh, that could be a way of, of having a life box, too. You're managing to put yourself into the dog. But the idea that sometimes hackers like the idea that we're living in a virtual reality. Sometimes you'll hear that. And again, uh, I just I, that idea doesn't, doesn't really interest me. It just, the world is so rich as it is. And, and to imagine that we're in VR, it's sort of turning your back on on what's actually here. Yeah? With, with regards to... Oh, Go ahead. Uh, I was thinking, you know, the kind of life boxes we make today, the crude ones with Facebook, and, uh-huh. and then even your life box, which is much richer, you know, the, how you use your website, it is, it's always kind of putting the best foot forward, you know, the social media, we put the smiling faces on, we don't put... Our worst uh, uh, thoughts and fears and everything forward. Now it's just—it's more of a comment of just that the way you describe the life box would really, re- it would really start happening when there's a full record uh, un- right. uh, and sensitive record. Well, that's yeah, that's a, a good point. That's that's even like almost like you can get into it's almost like a mental disease if you start looking at Facebook and all your friends are so successful and they're always having birthdays and going on trips and getting awards and buying new things. And that's, you know, they're not just sunk into the pits of depression and despair, you know. Like, it's better to see more things like that. And that's, again, I think partly if people have more individual control over making their life boxes, that you might see more things like that. It can, uh, when it's mediated by a company, Again, it's it's not that Facebook particularly censors people very brutally. I mean, now and then it will, but there is yeah this convention of, of putting the best face forward, which it's really if you want to get people interested, it's better to talk about how unhappy you are. But you can't overdo it either, because then it's you know I've got problems too. You know, screw you. It's a delicate balance. Yeah, you want the full range. Yeah. I had a question about mental telepathy and, and um, how we've gone from email and how can we communicate with our minds uh, without the slug, bypass that slug? Uh, well, I mean, <coughs> to communicate directly with your mind, I think I think it is going to happen, but it's, as I say, it's, it's so kludgy right now just to be able to drink a beer, you have to have a chip in your head with... But we don't know very much about the brain, and the whole thing about we know there's electrical activity, and we don't really have any we don't have any clear idea of how the activity relates to what you're thinking. I mean, they will do these uh, PET scans, and they'll show you know certain parts of your brain light up when you think about you know a hamburger or when you think about a dead cat. But uh, it would be. I do really like my voice. I've started using, I have a Pixel phone by Google, okay? They're watching me all the time. I just got tired of being an Apple person. So I got the Pixel 2, and it it has really good voice recognition on the keyboard. And I use that a lot for commenting, because the keyboards are so shitty and small, you know? It's, voice really helps. And I think voice is gonna get super, super much better. Though, if I'm using the voice keyboard, then my wife will say, what are you doing? And so then the first part of the message is, what are you doing? (laughs) It'd be better if it knew my voice, his master's voice, you know. But uh, it's, I think that's really the next thing is going to be voice. And it it took me a while to get used to doing voice because you you need to sneak off alone to do it because it's just, you seem weird if you're talking to the, you know. But it's a, then there's, they've talked about supposedly you can have subvocal mics that are just here, and you just think about saying something, and it can pick that up. So that's getting a step closer to, to what we really want. But uh, and again, the whole thing of whether we want to be able to see email in our head—it's uh, it's iffy, you know, because there's so much crap, and somehow it's, there'd be something that wouldn't let you turn it off. <laughs> And then you're schizophrenic, you know. It's the voice telling me to to do things that I don't want to do.